Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter, episode 1.1 of the Syrian... 1.11. Civil War. Hey, Ray. How are you, Ray? Hey, Cam. I am peachy of the keenest. Going to be in Australia very soon, Aussie listeners. Go to uh, lifeofseason.com slash rayday if you haven't bought your yeah. tickets yet for the Melbourne-Sydney-Brisbane love fests that we'll be having. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Cannot wait to be exposed to, and I'm going to leave it right there. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of our last episode of uh, the Syrian thing, um, we talked about uh, Bashar came to power. Everyone had a lot of hopes for him because he was he, he was like quiet, polite. wasn't his dad. He was a Bigger. eye doctor. He married a Sunni woman who was born and raised in England. Looked and sounded like British royalty. Um, and there was a little bit of reform happened, but then it got shut down. And then nine eleven happened a few months after that. Um, now as we know back in the early 90s, 91, Hafez al-Assad had supported the US invasion of Iraq. No love, really, between Syria and Iraq because at the time, in particular because Iraq had been fighting Iran, who were close to the Syrians because the Alawites are close to the Shia, um, and mm-hmm. Iran was a big ally of Syria's... Um, but this time around, in the early 2000s, when the U.S. wants to invade Iraq, Assad, Bashar al-Assad, says no. Any thoughts on have why, a... Ray? I was, I was just about to ask you, I could not find anything. Again, I wonder if he's being advised, if it's just his inexperience, because this big American wave is coming. How do you not wisely step aside and deal with the repercussions later? But uh, I, I just... It, it's not going to be good for Syria at all. And so that, that decision of his makes no sense to me. Well, from some of the stuff that I read, this, the suggestion is that he may have seen the fact that uh, this, was a, this was going to be a bad thing for the Middle East if the US just come in and start taking out countries. He, right. want, he wasn't just going to stand by and let Bush... Just go in and start stomping all over Middle Eastern countries and replacing their governments. Because it would happen to Syria, uh, I think, yeah. is the deal here. So I, I I suspect that was part of it. They they said no, they were going to fight. They weren't going to just let the US establish a huge military base next door in Iraq. Kind of mm-hmm. next door. Right. Quasi next door. They already have one in Israel, which is literally next door. To Syria, they already have one in Saudi Arabia, yeah. which is kind of next door in the away. region. They didn't right. didn't want an, another U.S. base uh, proxy, U.S. proxy, if not literally direct bases. Uh, as it turned out, there are were and are in Iraq. 
Um, which, of course, the fact that he stood up in public and said, no, I, I don't support this, just infuriated the Bush administration even more. They weren't friendly towards Syria in the first place, keeping in mind that a lot of the guys in the Bush administration, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, all go back to kind of Reagan days. They were part of the Reagan administration. They were part of the George H.W. Bush administration. Um, and so they've got a long history with Syria going right back to, I guess, the days just after the OPEC crisis in the mid-'70s where Syria was a big player. But Syria's involvement in Lebanon, Syria's involvement in wars uh, against Israel, these guys, mm -hmm. the Bush, Cheney, Rums, uh, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz guys, they, they've been playing against Syria for decades. Uh, at this point, in the early two thousands. So Syria is a known, yeah, Syria is a known entity to them, but uh, maybe Bashar is not. But yeah, they're, they're suddenly, um, like like we were talking about in the last episode, the the Americans now see everything as black and white, and here's this guy, you know standing up for himself, standing up for his region. It's going to piss off the Americans. Again, I guess it's a very bold move on his part, but, and I remember the mood American was in after 9-11. Uh, I mean, if we just thought, assumed, or it was hinted or believed that somebody was involved in that, I mean, Bush had the support of the vast majority of this country to go after them full force. So again, ballsy, but, but reckless. Well, yeah, and also, like, completely immature, I think, America's response to it. Um, oh, yeah. No recognition at all that um, effects have causes, right? The 9-11 was an effect, and that there were causes behind that. But anyway, we won't get sucked into that. That's another thing we can... Maybe that's another series we can do. Now, I mentioned at the end mm -hmm. of the last episode that even though Syria was considered one of the axis of evil countries by the Bush administration, they were also useful to them at the same time. The <laughs> US, actually, when they declared axis, the, Syria as part of being part of the axis of evil, they said, well, you know, we know that they use torture to extract information out of their enemies. Everyone said, really? How do you know that? And they said, because we send people there to be tortured. Um, they said no, that never quite, mind. quietly. Secret. Yeah, they didn't say that. On TV, but that's actually what was going on. So Syria was one of the main places after 9-11 where the US sent ghost detainees as part mm. of a program known as Extraordinary Rendition. And I'm going to define those two terms for everyone so they know what we're talking about. All right. So a ghost detainee is a term used by the US government to designate a person held in a detention centre whose identity has been hidden by keeping them unregistered and anonymous. So oh. you arrest someone, you throw them in a prison, but there's no record of it. Right. You know who you have, but their family doesn't know where they're at, and then you can just say when asked, don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. We yes. have, yeah we, we've checked the files. We've got no mention <laughs> of that person. I'm sorry. Jeez. Right. And which is true, which is technically true. Now, this is about as fucking evil as you can get. You yeah. pull someone off a street, any street anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where it is, van pulls up, 
half a dozen blokes jump out, put a black bag over your head, zip tie on your hand, on your ankles and your your, your wrists, um, throw you in the back of a van, whisk you off. No one knows. As far as your family, your wife, your children. Uh, your, your parents are concerned. You were there one minute, you're gone the next. No one knows what happened to you. Right. You, you disappear for years. No one knows. No one knows where you are. No one can check up on your health or well-being, your safety. No one knows if you're alive or you're dead. You you just disappeared. So this is something the U.S. government has been doing at least since 9-11, um, probably before that. I'm sure it wasn't the first time they did it, but it scaled up massively after 9-11. And Syria yeah. was one of the people, uh, one of the places where they sent ghost detainees. Now, extra. Now, go. I'm sorry. I was I was just going to say. Um, well, I tell you what. You do you do your definitions, and then I'll just throw out a little bit more information. Okay. So extraordinary rendition, uh, also called irregular rendition or forced rendition, is when mm. the U.S. government abducts somebody and then sends them to another country to be tortured so they're not on U.S. soil. So one of the reasons they do this is because because of the United States' legal framework. If you're on U.S. territory, you have to be subject to the laws of the land, which means you need a lawyer, and Miranda laws and all that kind of stuff uh, kick in. You, you need to have a, a fair trial. You need to have a lawyer. You need representation, all that kind of stuff. But... If they don't set foot on U.S. soil, if they're not, if they're like in a faraway place where nobody knows where they are, they mm-hmm. they don't fit under the U.S. legal framework. Now, I'm going to say it's not just America who does this. The Australians watched and learnt from this, and went, "Oh, right." So, for the last ten or fifteen years, the successive Australian governments have been grabbing. Um, uh, immigrants, people trying to arrive in Australia, asylum seekers coming by boat right. from Indonesia, the Navy grabs them and takes them and throws them on either an island uh, called Nauru or an island called Manus uh, Island, a part of Papua New Guinea, where we've built huge prisons, uh, which we call detention centres because it sounds nicer than uh, concentration camps or prisons. Right. But it's the same thing. And we throw them on there because it's not Australian territory, therefore they're not subject to Australia's constitution and laws. So this is something that lovely Western countries have been doing uh, on an increasing basis since 9-11. Uh, but that's what, when you hear extraordinary rendition... It's a nice mm-hmm. way of saying throwing somebody in a prison in another country where they aren't offered the uh, legal protections of the United States. All right. Now, the, this program that uh, Cam's talking about, this was set up, obviously, um, uh, to protect the United States. 54 countries have been known to be involved with the United States in these extraordinary renditions. In July of 2014, the European Court of Human Rights condemned the government of Poland for participating in a CIA extraordinary rendition, ordering Poland to pay restitution to the men who had been abducted because they were taken to CIA black sites in Poland and tortured. So obviously it's condemned by everybody who obviously do not have the power to do anything about it. And like you said, Western powers keep doing it. Is it effective? I have no idea. But if there's someone that you suspect is a threat, 
If you can make them disappear and just detain them for years and years and years, obviously they can't hurt anybody. And um, I would imagine that their usefulness under torture, as far as giving you information, is up pretty quickly. But again, you don't know if they are innocent. So you, by theory, by game theory, you just hold them. And uh, I guess eventually they'll die or whatever. But yeah, how many? How long have these people been held on Guantanamo Bay? I mean, this just is. This is just like you said. This is evil. This is sick. But it is something that happens. It is something that America does when we have been overreacting to nine eleven, and we're still doing it to this day. So, do you understand the um the 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 theory behind why you can't just put them in a U.S. Pres- uh, prison? and allow them all of the rights that they would have, allow them legal representation, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what's, what's the fear? What's the risk of doing that? Is it because you don't want them, you don't want anyone to know that they've, they've been arrested because there could be a signal that you're coming after them or because it could create out- outrage? As an American, what do you understand to be the theory yeah. behind ghost detainees and extraordinary renditions? Yeah, I would think that if I was either a part of a group, a terrorist cell, or maybe a supposed terrorist cell, or just loosely affiliated with someone who was a part of a terrorist cell, but I didn't know they were in a terrorist cell. If I get abducted, uh, excuse me, if I get taken to a prison in the United States, obviously that can be found out, that can be discovered, I can get a lawyer. I am, you know, I have to have a, uh, what does the law say, the Constitution says, a quick public speedy trial, something like that. The point is they just can't keep me there and it could tip off other people. If that is the case, that is a poor excuse um, for for what they do. And I have a lot of conservative friends. I'm, I'm friends with a lot of conservatives on Facebook and, and I respect their opinion and I, hopefully they respect mine, but I just, I cannot go along with this. Uh, but they, they would quickly say, this is just the way the world is. This is reality. Freaking deal with it. It's us or them. And so we're going to do it. Let me stop you there. You don't actually respect their opinion. You respect their right to have an opinion. The right to have an opinion. Right. That's what I meant to say. I completely don't, don't respect, respect what they their think. opinion. No, exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I, um, I, yeah, I'm finished. I, I think part of the reason for it, you're right, is you can keep them in there for a long time and you can have them tortured, which technically you're not allowed to do uh, under US law, although, as we know, it it was done in Abu Ghraib, and we're going to talk about that a lot uh, as we move on. But um, it's harder to keep it secret if there are Americans, which is, again, what happened in Abu Ghraib. Anyway, um, according to former CIA case officer Bob Bayer, who Seymour Hersh calls the best on-the-ground field officer in the Middle East... He told a reporter in 2004, Bob Bayer this is, if you want a serious interrogation, you send a prisoner to Jordan. If you want them to be tortured, you send them to Syria. If you want someone to disappear, never to see them again, you send them to Egypt. Damn. So there you go. That's how the CIA was running things. In 2002, the Bush administration uh, requested that Syrian authorities interrogate on their behalf a Canadian citizen by the name of Maher Maher Arar Maher Arar who was a mm-hmm. Syrian by birth but but a Canadian citizen he's an IT guy I've heard interviews with with him um, right he got 
He got uh, arrested or detained by the U.S. government at JFK Airport in 2002 on his way back to Canada uh, on suspicion of terrorism, and they flew him to Damascus on a secret plane. Again, his family didn't know what had happened to him. He was just whipped away. Just, Just gone. Yeah, sent to Syria. He's a Canadian, uh, but ends up in a prisoner in uh, Damascus. He was kept there for a year and tortured by Bashar al-Assad's security services until they determined that he was innocent and they sent him home to Canada. His family doesn't know what's happened to him in this time. He's just disappeared. He's supposed to be getting on a flight yeah. to, to back to Canada, just disappears. Imagine... Going to the airport. This is what happened to me yesterday. I was waiting at Brisbane Airport for Chrissy and Fox to get back from the United States yesterday. Um, their flight landed at 7. By 8.30, they hadn't shown up. And I was about... Okay. I was figured they, they'd been abducted and they were on their way to Syria. Um, right. When they, I, was about, I was about to get information and go, my wife got off a plane an hour and a half ago and she hasn't shown up yet. Can you send someone to look for her? Um, when they came walking out, apparently they really? got held up in customs, yeah. And I suspect it's because she was FaceTiming me from LAX and she was referring to Fox as a little terrorist. I said, well, you got to be careful. You're in <laughs> Trump land, man. You, you can't, can't, you can't say those sorts of things. People are, people are <laughs> listening to this FaceTime call. NSA is listening. Cameras are watching you. Right. There's spies everywhere, you know. She, she literally was, she used was the right. word terrorist. I mean, there yeah, they're doing searches on those words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fox apparently, they, you know, they strip searched him. You know, they anally uh, searched him at the airport. But uh... <laughs> Jesus. just poo, just poo. Yeah, lots of poo. Smelly, <laughs> smelly poo. Um. So anyway, uh, Maharara was finally sent back. There was uh, sort of a, the Canadian government. Um, awarded him $12.5 million. Uh, there was a, a yeah. Canadian government investigation and a commission. He was exonerated. He was awarded $12.5 million, but the US and Syrian governments never apologized or paid up. I was going to say Uncle Sam should have to pay the bill on that one. Yeah. Shit. but And this is an interesting point. I want you to stop and think about this. You can justify the fact that they arrested him and sent him to a, a Syrian torture prison if you want, but when he was found to be innocent and there was a Canadian government investigation, Canada's an ally of yours, friendly government, mm-hmm. friendly nation, democratic nation, found to be innocent, the US has neither apologized nor paid compensation. Like, what does that really, what, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, my thing would be, if if I was in charge, you would like to think, okay, let's let's examine our policy. Obviously, we got the wrong guy. Why did we think he was a terrorist? You know, what was the process? What's the steps we need to evaluate our system? Because obviously, we fucked up. And I guarantee you, the vast majority of Americans have never heard this story before. Have you no, heard the story? I had no idea. No, hell no. no. And you're supposed to be doing research for this fucking show, and you still didn't know the story. No, I you're didn't actually know. you're actually paid to know the story, and you don't know the story. <laughs> I d- I'd never heard that. Oh my god! Yeah. 
So the US-Syrian relationship, even after Bashar, even after 9-11, is kind of a love-hate relationship. In public, we talk about we hate them because they're brutal. In private, they're useful because they're brutal. That's a fucked up... Yeah, 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 yeah. What now, um, when Maher Arar was taken to, Ma- to Damascus, I believe he actually had an audience with Bashar, and Bashar um, didn't talk to him. He just sang him a song. Shit. Another original composition by Bashar al-Assad. Oh, my God. He had a pair of pliers and a blowtorch in his hand while he was singing the song. No! No! And electrodes attached to a car battery. instruments singing that song that's fucking <laughs> creepy no man. i can't that's, that's fucking that's like I'm gonna, reservoir I'm going dogs to bed cutting soon. off the ears and yes. creepy. Oh my God. all right before we go much further and ruin more phil collins songs i want to um there's right. a couple of syrian minorities that we haven't talked about yet that playing that are playing a big part in the syrian civil war that we need to just touch on i think uh the first is the kurds um, you might have heard of the Kurds, um, usually associated with a little Miss Muffet who sat on a tuffet, but um, <laughs> these days they're a minority, mostly in Asia Minor. There's about right. 35 million of them around the world. Uh, the thing to know about the Kurds, if you don't know much about them, is they're not a religious group, they're an ethnic group. Ah. Mm. 
uh, yeah, mostly in the Middle East. <clears throat> They're kind of related to the Iranians, uh, but they live in an area that sort of covers bits of Turkey, bits of Iran, bits of Iraq, and northern Syria. And because they're an, an, an ethnic people, they're an ethnicity, um, they belong to a large group of different religions, different creeds. In fact, I read that they're perhaps the most religiously diverse people in uh, that part of the world. And during the 1970s, there was a legendary Iraqi Kurd warlord, Mustafa Barzani, uh, who... Yeah, I know Mustafa Batani. Sounds you, you got him. You pretty much have to be a warlord if that's your name, really. <laughs> you know, you're born into it. Uh, that's just a killer name, right? He fought a brutal guerrilla war against the Baathist government in Baghdad. <clears throat> now, the Kurds have been like like a lot of minorities, religious minorities and ethnic minorities uh, in the Middle East. The Kurds have got a pretty fucking harsh end of the stick for a very long time. They haven't been given a lot of citizenship rights in the countries where they live. They're treated pretty poorly. So this is the reason why he was fighting a guerrilla war. Uh, they, they, they like the Israelis in many ways. They want, they wanted their own land with their own mm-hmm. protections, their, the ability to live their own lives and do whatever the fuck they want. Um, so Barzani fought this war and his, his guerrilla army known as the Peshmerga uh, still around today, um, brutal, good, brutally good, I guess, guerrilla fighters. Uh, they're, they're known mm-hmm. as being very, very good, particularly under Barzani. D- during this period in the 70s, they were vastly outnumbered by the Iraqi army, but they managed to fight them to a standstill. So that's Damn. fucking saying something. They're a bit like the uh, Viet Cong <laughs> versus the Americans at right. the same time in the 60s and 70s. But um, part of the reason why the Kurds were successful is they were being supported by the CIA uh, and and Iran, um, who obviously had a, you know, they they weren't friendly with the Iraqis. So they were being supported by the CIA, particularly in terms of weapons. Um, They were being supported by Iranian military advisors. Um, but then when the Shah of Iran, who was still around at the time, and Saddam Hussein, who'd just come to power, uh, concluded a peace treaty in early March mm-hmm. of 1975, Henry Kissinger ordered the CIA to stop supporting the Kurds. That's fucked up. Now, think about the timing of all of this. OPEC crisis... Remember right. the OPEC crisis, 73, oh, 74? Yeah. The US's you know, economy gets crippled as a result of the OPEC crisis. Kissinger does his uh, shuttle diplomacy. He's flying all around the Middle East, doing deals left, right, and center. So this is one of the wheels, sorry, fucking deals that he did, the peace treaty between Iraq and Iran, mid-'75. Um, and But, yeah, cuts off supply to the, the Kurds because that was part of Saddam's Requirements. Okay, you, right. you you want you want me to do peace with Iran. Okay, but you need to let me take care of this Kurd issue. So when Kissinger gave the order for the CIA to stop supporting the Kurds, basically there was this all-out uh, Iraqi offensive. The Peshmerga were destroyed, wiped out. 
Um, Saddam, some of the estimates of Saddam killed about 180,000 of them over the course of the next 10 years. Um, and about one and a half million of them had to flee Iraq into Turkey, Iran, and Syria. Now, uh, Barzani himself, though, was airlifted out and flown to a safe house in Northern Virginia by the the CIA, where he spent the rest of his life. So CIA has black houses where you're tortured, but they also have safe houses where if you do things for them, uh, you get to live in relative comfort. I live about an hour and a half away from Northern Virginia. So we should, we should make, you should come over. We'll make a road trip. And we'll go check out some of the CIA safe houses. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I just wanted to mention one thing. Uh, I was reading that part of your notes. And so I got on the CIA, what do you call it? Declassified website. And there were notes from Mustafa to Kissinger and to Nixon um, there's, there's one particular, just, just how casual there these guys relationships seem to be. There's a uh, January, 1973. It says memorandum for the president from Henry A. Kissinger subject, January 15th birthday greetings from the, from Mullah Mustafa Barzani. And it reads president Barzani of the Kurdish democratic party of, of Iraq has sent you the following. Our deep congratulations to the president on the occasion of his 60th birthday. We wish him good health and all success. Now, obviously, that was in 73 when their relationship was going well. We're sending them weapons. They're fighting the the Iraqis for us. Uh, things are looking good. And like you said, once a deal's made, they have to shut that off. And now it's time for Saddam to get some payback, except for the leader. He's going to live out his life in you know, relative peace in Northern Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. But there were several there were several miss, missives like that from uh going back and forth just, you know, hi, how's it going? W- you know, what do you need? How's how how's the fighting going? It was just it was pretty pretty amazing these guys were just sending letters to each other in the middle of supporting them in in you know this proxy war. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, got to communicate, hey, but- got to communicate with your partners. Gotta be friendly. Happy birthday, Mm. Mr. Nixon. Mm. So. So Saddam kills a whole bunch of them out. Yeah. Wipes a whole bunch of them out during the 80s when they can't get any more weapons from the United States. Why? Because we don't need them anymore. And also, you know, Saddam was very friendly with the United States during the 80s, um, as people, I'm sure, know, uh, in sort of 79, 80, after the Shah was kicked out of Iran, the revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, that kind of stuff we've talked about before, the US Mm -hmm. supported Saddam Hussein to fight a war with Iran to try and kick out the um, Iranian revolutionary government. Um, And so they could reinstall the Shah because he was their guy. And um, uh, uh, so, you know, and and there's footage and photos that I'm sure we've all seen of uh, Rumsfeld. Was it Rumsfeld? I think it was Rumsfeld going over and shaking hands with Saddam Hussein in the 80s 
when Rumsfeld was working for um, Reagan. Um, right. He went over, and I think he was even Secretary of State uh, at some point there. Um, yeah, went over, shaking hands with Saddam, buddy, buddy. <laughs> so while the US was best friends with Saddam, Saddam was killing hundreds of thousands of Kurds. Um, but again, as we've said a million times, and I've actually got I've, I've got something on this a bit later on, but uh, if if he's our dictator, it's okay. Brutality, right. genocide, any of that kind of stuff is okay if he's our guy. If he's supporting our aims, then we turn a blind eye to it. We only oh, make a big deal out of it when he's not uh, supporting our sort of goals and objectives. So uh, Kurds account for about 9% of Syria's population. They've got about 1.6 million people. So that's not nothing. That's that's a lot of people. Right, right. Um, what's the... What's the um, African-American population in the United States, right? I have no idea. I think it's more than 9%, but uh, let's I think see. 12.2% 12. 12. Um, okay. of the United States. There you go. So uh, the uh, Kurds are roughly the same. Let's say roughly. Let's round them up and down to about 10% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. So not nothing. Um, they're mostly concentrated up in the north and the northeast, but there are also relatively significant Kurdish populations in big cities like Damascus and Aleppo, obviously. But they have traditionally been denied the right to Syrian nationality. Um, now, I, I've, I've sort of seen interviews with Bashar talking specifically about this, he says, well, you know, it's hard for us to tell who are really Syrian and who are Turkish and who are Iraqi, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's one of these issues that uh, has just kind of been ignored. They've been left out. So 10% of the population um, not given the rights to be uh, protections of citizens. Not that Syrians had a lot of citizen protections, but uh, right. they, had, yeah. they had some. Yeah. So there's a big well, deal I for saw the Kurds. I saw a report by CNN. It said in the 60s, an exceptional census stripped some 120,000 Syrian Kurds, 20% of the Syrian Kurdish population, of their Syrian citizenship. The Syrian government, viewing Kurdish identity as a threat, has suppressed the group's political and cultural rights. And obviously, whenever the Kurds complain, lethal methods are used when they protest. So this is something that's been going on against them by at least Syria for decades. Yeah, well, by all all, all of these countries, I think. Right. Yeah. Uh, but as we'll see as we get into the, the fighting in the Civil War, the Kurds have been able to take control in the last few years of the northern parts of Syria. So they're a big player in um, what's going yeah. on there at the moment. Now, uh, the other minority that we haven't really talked about is the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E, the Druze. Now, the Druze are a religious minority. Uh, mm -hmm. Their religion is kind of interesting. It's uh, kind of a mishmash of a whole bunch of weird shit. Um, <laughs> a potpourri. Yeah, I say that with all due respect, and I give no right. due respect to religions at all. So there's no, don't take that as 
there's no respect. But it's fascinating. Let me put it that way. Uh, you know, I love me some religion, man. I love thinking about how it works. <laughs> so they're they're monotheistic, supposedly. They're Abrahamic, like okay. Islam and Judaism and Christianity. But um, their religion is sort of based on the teachings of their 11th century founder, Hamza ibn Ali, al-Akim, the sixth Fatimid Caliph, also from the 11th century, with little bits of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and Akhenaten thrown in. <laughs> like a little now, salt and pepper. <laughs> Akhenaten, uh, if people have never heard of him before, was uh, the Egyptian pharaoh of the 18th dynasty who ruled for about 17 years, died around 1336 BCE, and Damn. is best best known for introducing monotheism into Egypt. Now, Egypt, of course, polytheistic for most of its history, lots and lots of different right. gods that they worshipped. Um, he went, no, one god, um, <laughs> just one. And they're not now, cats. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, this is 1336 BCE. Now, this is a lot older than uh, Judaism, depending on, you know, what you believe in terms of the timing of Judaism, but certainly certainly a lot older than monotheism in Judaism, mm-hmm. Akhenaten. Uh, it's kind of thought by scholars today that the Hebrews only became monotheistic kind of after they were released from Babylonian captivity, uh, which is around 500 BCE. Um, Cyrus the Great supported, you know, the, the temple and, and Solomon and the fucking the, the, the gave them the rights and all that kind of shit. Um, right. So this is well, well, well before that. Now, um, you, you may, even if you haven't heard of Akhenaten, you may have heard of his wife, Queen Nefertiti, mm-hmm. and um, oh. his son... Tutankhamun. Wow. Why are you laughing? Now... No, just these names. You're laughing at Titty, really? That's where you were going with that? Never Titty? No. You were, weren't you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Tutankhamun. Come in my ass, Nefertiti. Can I come on your titties? Can I Tutankhamun in your Nefertitis? <laughs> <laughs> It's only hour two, people. Pray for hour three. <laughs> can I Pray t- for us during hour t- three. Come? Can I take t- calm in your nefertitis? Someone needs to make a meme of that. Um, anyway, uh, yes. Akhenaten called himself the son of God. Mm. As I understand it, the one God that he sort of worshipped was the sun. Uh, Amun, I think. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. My my understanding of of Egyptian um, theology, uh, particularly under Akhenaten, is kind of flimsy at best. But my understanding right. is, yeah, he worshipped the sun. Um, mm-hmm. He was assassinated, I think, and then eradicated from history. All of his, uh, you know, the the hieroglyphs about him, all of the pictures right. of him that were built on bas reliefs on temples and whatever wiped out he was eliminated yeah. by the uh, uh next generation just totally wiped him out they didn't want any recollection of this evil monotheism that he had tried to Fucking introduce kids. anyway right um so the druze sort of a 
Drew's faith is a grab bag of Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, Pythagoreanism, and Hinduism, <laughs> uh, with a bit of Egyptian uh, monotheism thrown in there as well. So, fa- I mean, how that fucking works, I have no idea. But anyway, it sounds fascinating to me. Um, right. It's one of the major religious groups in the Middle East. Uh, has somewhere between 800,000 and a million adherents. They, they live yeah. primarily in Syria, Lebanon, and Israel, and I think a little bit in Jordan and different parts of Southwestern Asia. But they also have a history of being oppressed for their religious beliefs, and they are another party to the Syrian civil war that we're going to be talking about later on. I just wanted to give them a shout-out before we got too much further because they don't get a lot of coverage. I certainly so, didn't so, know much about them yeah. until I started digging down into this shit. So just to recap for a second, post 9-11, publicly we're mad at Syria for not supporting the invasion, but privately we use them to torture people that we pick up and don't acknowledge. You've got the Kurds who've been able to hold on amazingly in um, southeastern Turkey, northern Syria, whatever, that kind of area. Then you've got the Druze that are there who are a religious minority who are being picked on and probably rightly so for their hodgepodge. Uh, religion. So you've got all these people in a mix, and now Hafez dies, Bashar comes along. I don't think he's the man to handle this, and all these different players somehow are going to affect the coming civil war. I mean, that's just that's just absolute madness. No wonder no one can imagine or picture a path to peace in this area. Not to mention all of the countries sitting around Syria that have gone... <laughs> Right with the them outside players and their allies that, <clears throat> yeah. that we haven't gotten to yet. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. Now, how much time we got left? Fifteen minutes. All right. Yeah. Twenty minutes. Okay. So, I mentioned earlier that Syria doesn't have a lot of oil. Now, naturally, mm-hmm. whenever the Middle East comes up, we think about oil, and whenever yeah. wars are going on in the Middle East, we think it's got something to do with oil. And usually, you would be right in thinking about that. Um, the, the the source of most conflicts in the last 70 years in the Middle East have been the result of one of three things. They're the result of sort of the post-collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the British and the French mandates, the dissolution mm-hmm. of those post-World War II, independence being given to these countries, borders being just drawn by Churchill <laughs> when he was shit-faced drunk on a napkin. Right. Um, and Caucasian uh, champagne. Uh, yeah, and the inherent sort of um, religious, sectarian uh, uh, conflicts and tensions that, that that have been going on between these people for since well, fucking uh, six hundred six hundred thirty two CE when Muhammad died, at the very least. Um, right. So that's one of the main one of the things. It's sort of sort of political. Uh, and religious tensions caused by a number of those factors. Second thing is oil, control of the oil. Mm, Uh, Since oil became a big deal in the early 20th century, all of the major geopolitical players, predominantly Russia, England, the United States, to a lesser extent um, China, Japan, uh, and sort of France, these sort of countries, wanting, wanting wanting to have some sort of control over the supplies of oil so they can get it for cheap 
and they can stop their enemies from blocking their access to it. And the third major cause is Israel. Uh, now, yeah. the, the, the creation of Israel and the support for Israel by Western countries has a lot to do with those first two, particularly the oil, uh, I believe. It gets played out as a moral and, and religious issue. That's why we support Israel. Really, it's uh, so we have a major ally of the West in the middle of the Middle East that can have a lot of particularly U.S. Um, weapons, a lot of U.S. proxy bases that can be used to intervene and interfere in uh, Middle Eastern issues relatively quickly. And it also it's also gets back to that Kissinger doctrine of keep them fighting each other. Keep the, If you have right. the Middle East all fucking fighting Israel, it stops them from aligning in some sort of pan-Arab state and where they control all of the oil and they can actually get their shit together. But in Syria's case, they don't have any oil. Well, they have some oil, mm. but they don't have much right. oil. They don't have enough oil for it to be worth invading them about, which is probably one of the reasons why the U.S., hasn't been more actively involved militarily in Syria mm -hmm. over the last 40 years. You're right. I can see that. Yeah. It's sad, but there you are. Um, so, Syria, so why is it important? Well, we've talked about this uh, a little bit, and we'll keep talking about that. It's sort of strategically important in terms of the mm. corridor that it sits in. But just gets, getting back to oil, it, they come in at about 31st in the world in terms of their oil supplies behind the United Kingdom. The UK has more fucking oil under the ground than <laughs> Syria. How's that for Damn. bad luck? Like, you got to suck yeah. if you end up running in a Middle Eastern country <laughs> only to find out the fucking Poms have got more oil under the ground than you do. Like, oh, but shit, if you think about right? the irony... The palms are the one that drew the fucking lines in the first place. That's why you don't have any oil under your ground. That's right. Yeah, if they just left Iraq as part of your country, you'd be sitting pretty, right? Boom. That's mm. right. That's right. And around. Um, yeah, so, but they're positioned strategically. They sit between Europe and the Middle East and mm. Africa. That corridor there is, and always has been going back to... Alexander the Great, going back to the Caesars, um, that you know stretch of land that yeah. includes Syria, Palestine, Israel, Jordan. Said various names, Phoenicia. Um, you've got uh, good access to the Mediterranean, naval access, you know, from ports up and along that coast. Plus, in terms of mm -hmm. your land route, you're the land route uh, straight up to um, sort of, well, you're connecting Europe sort of via Turkey into the Middle East. Um, right. And then you're connecting Crucial also Egypt and Africa all the way up there. Yeah, so strategically very important. Right. You want to say something? No, just, yeah, just the fact that it's it's literally the, uh, the road to no matter where you're going to a different part of the world. And so whoever controls that obviously controls a lot. So, so if it doesn't have a lot of oil... But obviously, you have to transport oil. You go back to its very location and why it's important. Yeah. Okay. Now, in 2009, Qatar, or Qatar, as it often gets called. I call it Qatar, but a Qatar, I hear it called on the news. I don't know right. what the official pronunciation is. Qatar and Turkey 
wanted to build a gas pipeline uh, across Syria. Ooh. Yeah. So gas going from Qatar to Turkey. And Assad opposed it and instead uh, supported a different one, which we'll get to in a second. But the, the Qatar pipeline was going to go uh, from its gas fields through Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. Jordan, through Syria, and then eventually to Turkey, who was going to be the customer, maybe even you know uh, a source of energy for Europe, go from Turkey through right. to Europe, right? Um, now, this would have been good for Qatar, uh, would have potentially enabled some competition for Rus- Russia's gas exports, oil and gas being two of Russia's major sources of revenue, mm-hmm. which America wanted to support because anything that can yeah. weaken Russia economically, America's all for. Uh, but Assad said no. Uh, <laughs> and instead did a separate deal with Iran for a different pipeline that would carry Iranian gas through Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, which would create mm. a new source of income for Iran, of course, which the United States wasn't happy about because right. they still want to replace the Iranian government with their own puppet government so they have access to the Iranian oil. And, you know, that just sort of takes out another enemy of Israel and all of this kind of stuff, which we'll get to as we move forwards. Um, so the US, not happy with Bashar. Again, this is like kind of a long time after 9-11, but he's already in the axis of evil, even though we're using right. him to torture people when it's convenient. Then he's... Uh, interfering with economic plans for gas pipelines, creating opportunities perhaps for Iran to make more money. So he's even more on the enemy's list as a result of the gas pipeline. Yeah, and so the the Americans have got to be asking themselves, what would Iran do with all that extra cash? I mean, we are already the Satan to them. Are they going to buy more weapons? Are they going to support more terrorist groups? The last thing we need is them flush with cash. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, that pipeline that uh, Bashar approved, there's been pretty much no progress on it because of the civil war. Obviously, civil war going on Uh. in Syria, you're not building a fucking gas pipeline (laughs) Uh, for for a whole variety of reasons. Number one, no one wants wants to go and work there. Two, everyone's busy fighting. Three, Bullets flying. Yeah. 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 Um, Now... I want to talk just as we close up about some U.S. intelligence um, regarding regime change in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a classified report in 2013. It was put together by the U.S. Army and intelligence groups that concluded that the overthrow of Assad would have drastic consequences because the opposition that was being supported by the Obama administration was dominated by jihadi terrorist groups, quote-unquote. Now, according to Michael T. Flynn who was then the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, 
better known these days as Trump's <laughs> national security advisor who lasted 24 days, who may have broken the law and might soon be testifying about who did what with Russia during the election. Uh, he's the report, the fifth, by the way. Has he? So yes. he's not testifying. He, exactly. Mm. I see. Interesting. Mm. Now, it was Trump. They, of course, they pulled up one of Trump's tweets that said, anybody who takes the fifth obviously is guilty of something. So they keep putting that all <laughs> over all over media. So it's pretty funny. Yeah. Wow. Um, anyway, back in 2013, uh, he helped put together that report, but he then said that it was ignored by the Obama administration. Now, take that with a mm. grain of salt. We don't know how reliable Flynn is as a witness, obviously. But um, the point there is that the 2013, so it was a five years ago, even at that relatively early stage in the Syrian civil war, it had been going for a year and a half, the US uh, Army and intelligence groups had concluded that overthrowing Assad would probably be a bad thing. Right. Even though so they would desperately we- like to have somebody different in control there, the opposition was controlled by jihadi groups. Uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and we're going to get to them in more detail in the next episode. But, uh, yeah, so it, it was... it was They understood that if, if the Assad's topple, then right. it's going to be run by basically ISIS, effectively, like Iraq, to a large extent, has been for the last God knows how many years. And and no one really right. wants that. So I'm, I'm sorry, just, just as an American citizen, what the fuck... We we don't want Bashar, Bashar Bashar, but we don't want him leaving because anything that's around that might take over is probably going to be worse. They're probably going to be more radical or extreme or hate America even more. Whereas Assad um, Assad just seems to be wanted to be left alone by us. So, what kind of policy do you put in place if you're just used to knocking governments over? But now we've got one we don't want knocked over, but we don't want him too strong anyway, and we'd really like it if he worked with us. How in the hell can you craft a foreign policy out of that? Yeah, well, as we'll see, the U.S. has been uh, probably actively weakening Assad anyway. As you know, Flynn mm. said the Obama administration ignored that report, and as we're going to see, they then sunk it. They continued to sink a ton of money into opposition forces over there. Gotcha. Um, but gotcha. my only point there is that as as early as 2013, the U.S. Army said, "You know what? If we support the opposition, it's going to be a bad, bad thing in Syria." But they did it for anyway. Us. Did it anyway. Well, for everybody, right. In 2005, the head of Mossad, Israel's intelligence service, told the US that Bashar was weak, but that, and here's the quote, neighboring countries have a genuine fear that radicals could replace Bashar in Syria. There is a widespread and strong preference for a weak but present Bashar al-Assad. As in, it can always get worse. Like, if you get rid of Trump, you got Pence. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> it can always get worse. So even the Israelis, who have been right. Syria's sworn enemies for decades, were saying, you know, better the devil you know, really. 
yeah, we don't like Bashar, and yeah, he's weak. But yeah. if what what comes after him could well be a lot worse. Now, this is two thousand and five, so six years before the Arab Spring, um, and sort of a couple of years before ISIS really came became prominent in Iraq too. So, um, you know, intelligence is. Uh, there's been intelligence from the U.S. Army themselves and the U.S. intelligence um, organizations and coming out mm-hmm. of Israel's intelligence organization going back well over a decade that removing Assad from power would be a fucking disaster for <laughs> right. Syria. But, would you, you, know, would and, you and say that... that- I'm sorry, I was just going to say, would you just say that as far as America, it's just force of habit. We don't know anything else. We've been obviously doing it since the end of World War II. Yeah, well, I think, you know, some of this gets back to what we covered in the economic episodes in um, the Cold War series. Like, if you are somebody in the United States who is part of the military-industrial complex, like you own a business mm-hmm. that supplies the military-industrial complex, whether it's weapons or soldiers, you know, private military um, mercs, or you provide right. computers to the U.S. military or software or soft drink or shoes or clothes or fucking pens or, you know... Whatever it is, you're part of the business infrastructure that profits massively out of the $700 billion a year taxpayers give to the military industrial complex in the United States. You don't give, do you give a fuck really if, if there's a disaster in Syria? You're making money hand over fist. Yeah. If you are. And you're safe you know, in if, America. If the, if the US, yeah, exactly. Yes, you know, okay, it heightens the risk that there'll be another terrorist attack in the US, like Manchester just happened this week, a couple of days ago in in London, Mm -hmm. the Manchester bombing. Uh, Well, in Manchester, I guess, not in London, Um, in England. But, uh, yeah, so it heightens that risk. But, okay, one hand, you're going to make an extra couple of million bucks this year. On the other hand, there might be another terrorist bombing in the US. Well, that's what we pay the... CIA to, or the FBI to prevent. So I, I, I do think they yeah. don't give a fuck. I don't think it's more habit. I think it's economic incentive. There is money to be made by mm, a lot of it. wars in the Middle East, and it's far enough removed from you that you, you're probably it's probably not going to be a direct threat to your life. I mean, you're not going to go over there and fight. You're not going to send your kid right. over there to fight. You're sending, you know, poor, dumb fucking rednecks and... Uh, and African American kids that got done for a B and E, like my mate Graydon Square, the rapper. I think I've talked about before, maybe on the Cold War show. He was given the option, you know, five years, five years in jail, oh, yeah. or five years yeah. fighting in Iraq. You know, me, I'd take the jail, but that's just shit. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so. Um, with the official timeline leading up to the events of the, the Syrian civil war, which started in 2011, there's plenty of evidence that the US government had been thinking about regime change in Syria for a long time before that. 
In 2006, William Roebuck, who at the time was the charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Damascus, charge d'affaires is the mm-hmm. French title of a diplomat who heads an embassy when the ambassador isn't there. He's basically the head of the um, embassy. He's the uh, Sir Humphrey right. Appleby of the embassy. Um, he's currently the U.S. ambassador to Bahrain, by the way, but in 2006 he was in Damascus. He wrote a cable that talked about ways the U.S. could help overthrow the Assad regime. This is 2006. Wow. It was later leaked by WikiLeaks, so we know what he wrote. Mm-hmm. He wrote, uh, I'm going to quote big sections of it here. This is a quote. We believe Bashar's weaknesses are in how he chooses to react to looming issues, both perceived and real, such as the conflict between economic reform steps, however limited, and entrenched corrupt forces, the Kurdish question, Mm -hmm. and the potential threat to the regime from the increasing presence of transiting Islamist extremists. This cable summarises our assessment of these vulnerabilities and suggests that there may be actions, statements and signals that the US government can send that will improve the likelihood of such opportunities arising. These proposals will need to be fleshed out and converted into real actions and we need to be ready to move quickly to take advantage of such opportunities. Damn. So... Remember, this is 2006, five years before the Arab Spring. And the head of the U.S. Embassy in Damascus is talking about all of the ways the U.S. can support, you know, an uprising in Syria to bring about regime change. So the United States is shitting itself right now with all the reports of Russia fucking with us in any and every way they possibly can. And here's us talking about, planning it about how to do it to Syria. It's okay if you do it to other countries. (laughs) I keep forgetting that. Thank you. I keep, thank you. Rule number one. It's okay (laughs) if we do it. Yeah. (laughs) Rule number two, if it's our dictator... It's okay. So let me keep reading from this cable because, like, this is about, I mean, and look, fuck, whatever you think of Julian Assange, whatever you think of WikiLeaks, um, here we have, this is is sort of the stuff where WikiLeaks comes, you know, to the fucking fore of of reporting and journalism. This isn't Mm -hmm. conspiracy theory stuff that the U.S. is plotting on overthrowing governments, blah, 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 blah. And usually, as I've said many times before in our shows, we kind of suspect that this stuff goes on, but usually it's 50 years, 60 years before we get to see the evidence of it. When everyone involved is long dead, long gone, and we can say, oh, well, that was back then, and it's not like that now... Like we said, the when they when the U.S. overthrew um, the Mossadegh government in, in Iran in 1953, mm-hmm. the U.S. didn't acknowledge that until the late 90s. Um, and by, and well, yes, we did do that. They denied it for 50 years, and they said, "Well, yes, we did do that, but you know, we don't do that kind of stuff now." 
<laughs> we would never do that. Here we have if I evidence. Could, if I could, if here we, if here I we could have... reenact that. I'm sorry. Yeah. If I could reenact that, no, 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 no. Okay, okay yeah. <laughs> here we have evidence, thanks to WikiLeaks, of it right. happening uh, a decade ago. Okay, so within li- not just living memory, but there. People who were in the administration then are still active now. Like this guy, Roebuck, he's uh, still uh, he's uh, well, he's been promoted. He's a U.S. ambassador now. He's not just a charge d'affaires. Anyway, back back to the cable. So it talked about one of the tactics that the U.S. could use is play on Sunni fears of Iranian Iranian influence. There are fears in Syria that the Iranians are active in both Shia proselytizing and conversion of mostly poor Sunnis. Though often exaggerated, such fears reflect an element of the Sunni community in Syria that is increasingly upset by and focused on the spread of Iranian influence in their country through activities ranging from mosque construction to business. Now, by the way, I want to point out something. One thing that dictators um, often say about the United States is that any, United, any American presence in their country is used to help overthrow the regime. This is why mm-hmm. dictators tend to kick United States embassies out. <laughs> uh, any American Step number one. NGOs, uh, they won't allow in there. They won't allow Human Rights Watch or, or the, you know various other NGOs because they say, well, really, they're just fronts for Americans who are trying to get the lay of the land here. They want, They use these things to build up relationships with the political opposition and they're using it to figure out how to overthrow the government. And America always mm-hmm. goes, what a load of bullshit. They, like the Castros have been saying this forever. America always goes, they just deny it. That's just not true. We would never, we would never do that. That's just ridiculous. Right. Here we have fucking direct evidence that that's actually, in this case, at least, what the head of the embassy in Damascus was doing. Uh, and it went further than writing a cable, too. They actually were building connections and relationships and funneling money and promises of support to the opposition in Damascus. I'll talk about that a bit later. Um, so here he's saying we should play on Sunni fears of Shia influence coming in from Iran. He also recommended we encourage rumours and signals of external plotting. Discourage Mm. FDI, especially from the Gulf. Uh, FDI is foreign direct investment. He wrote, Syria's economy is under pressure from dropping oil prices and has enjoyed a considerable uptick in FDI. So he's saying, uh, okay, their economy's struggling. They're getting foreign investment from around the Gulf. We should discourage that, basically from places like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, etc. We should say, no, listen, don't invest in Syria. Make them well, weaken, continue to weaken their economy, uh, and and that's going to increase, obviously, things like unemployment, economic tensions, which will help create the conditions for destabilizing the government and overthrow. Prevent them from getting external economic support. Uh, He talks about highlighting the Kurdish complaints um, and sort of talks about the Kurdish um, violent protests in the past in Syria. Obviously, they're already aware of their 
the Peshmerga's activities in the past in Iraq. Uh, he finishes his cable anyway, which is quite long, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he finishes it with this quote. If we are ready to capitalize, they will offer us opportunities to disrupt his decision-making, keep him off balance, and make him pay a premium for his mistakes. So the exact opposite of live and let live. <laughs> yes. Now, just, checking. just note here that but the Syrian government had never attacked the United States, had never invaded the United States um, under either Bashar al-Assad or Hafez al-Assad. They'd never done anything to attack. They, they weren't part of 9-11. They weren't part of supporting al-Qaeda. They'd done nothing to the United States. And yet the U.S. government yeah. is plotting to overthrow the Syrian government. Just for the fuck of it, I'm going to try to offer up an opposing view. So this guy's in the Middle East. He's been there for a while. He's probably considered an expert. Obviously, he's gathering information. Isn't, and maybe this is me being naive, isn't that part of his job to gather information? Here's how we can take these guys down. They're a dictatorship. They're maybe they're a monarchy. Um, they're not on our side. They're an enemy of Israel. Uh, they're they're with the Russians. No. So should no? Should we take that, them down? That's not the point of an embassy. A point of an embassy is to foster better relationships between nations. Mm. That's why you have an ambassador in a country. It's to act mm. as a conduit between the two countries. Again, Spain. Look, our cultures are different. So let me explain to you what we why we do this, why we what we mean when we say this, and, and vice versa. The role of an embassy is to act as a conduit, you know, to help the Syrians understand the Americans and the Americans understand the Syrians. Same reason why the Syrians would have an ambassador in Washington. It's to act to to develop stronger relationships, not to act to overthrow the fucking governments. I mean, if. If, right. if, if, if it came to light that the Syrian ambassador was riding cables back to Damascus <laughs> talking about how right. to overthrow the American government. <laughs> we would shit ourselves. Yeah. We would absolutely well, lose you would, it. Oh, yeah. You would be, yeah. It would be fucking, you know. So anyway. So, so embassies are nothing more than a tool. It's on how you use them for good or for bad. It's up to the person wielding the power. And obviously this person is, yeah, the darker side. Now, uh, we've got to wrap up. We're a bit over time. But I just want to point out that even though Roebuck was serving in the Bush administration at the time, 2006, he's a career foreign service officer like, like Sir Humphrey. Mm-hmm. Um Senior member of the Foreign Service in the United States, in good standing uh, with the U.S. government, has gone on to serve in U.S. embassies in Iraq and Libya and now in Bahrain uh, during the Obama administration. So it's not like anyone back in Washington got this report and went, oh, my God, you're talking about overthrowing a government. That's terrible. He wasn't demoted. Yeah, he wasn't removed. Even during the Obama administration, they weren't like, oh, my God, this guy, oh, he's a fucking troublemaker. Everyone went, yep, good, good, keep up the good work. He got promoted yep. as a result of this. So right. 
But, like, let's not be naive, folks. This is the way of the world. Um, and despite... So there's... Despite the what gets said in public by the US media and the US government about Syria uh, and they're horrified at what's going on over there, really, behind the scenes, they have been plotting uh, this kind of uh, a civil war in Syria for a very long time. This It's ex- played out exactly as they wanted it to. It's not saying they engineered the whole thing, but as... Roebuck said in his cable, we need to be ready to move quickly to take advantage of such opportunities. So let's do everything that we can to increase tensions here. And then when they erupt, we take advantage of them, which, as we'll see, is exactly what's been happening. All right, we've got to leave it there. We're over time. I've got another review I'm going to read. This is from Canada. Uh, Stephanie Knoll, uh, one of the Canadians who, uh, as far as I know, didn't end up in a Syrian torture camp. Congratulations, Good for Stephanie. her. Yes. Uh, her title is Because You Want More Than Just The Tip. Cam and Ray are no tease, and when it comes to analysing world issues, they'll give you more than just the tip. Cam's in-depth research combined with Ray's interventions make this show highly relevant in the post-truth world. Subscribe to this podcast if you're tired of the same old bullshit being rehashed over and over on the news. If you enjoy it when people go on tangents, please don't stop, Cam. And if you enjoy the F word being used appropriately or not, (laughs) I don't know there's any inappropriate way of using it personally. No. While you're at it, check out Life of Caesar, where this match in heaven all started. Thank you, Stephanie. Send me an email. Thank you. If you can work out what it is and give us your address in Canada. Yeah, that's your intelligence (laughs) test. And we will uh, send you a thank you gift for that. That's us for episode 12, uh, episode 13, coming up next week. We will be talking more about uh, the U.S.'s involvement in the Syrian civil war, among other things. We'll be talking about the beginning of the Arab Spring, I think, in the next episode. How it all began. Only took us 12 hours to get to that. Um, I think is a reasonable amount of time. Then we just yeah. got to cover the next seven years of the civil war. Um, don't forget, lifeofcaesar.com slash Ray Day if you're in Sydney, mm-hmm. Melbourne and Brisbane. And you want to come and uh, get a kiss from Ray uh, late mm-hmm. June, early July. Dates are up there. Buy your tickets, tickets only. Uh, don't forget to check out the Waterloo podcast on History by Hollywood that I did with Martin Darlington if you want two and a half hours of Napoleon. Um, <laughs> and what was the one you did with him? Uh, the Dam Busters. The damn busters. Did you get a word in edgeways? Because I didn't get a word in edgeways on my podcast. Really? Um, yeah. I, I did. I did. But um, it was tough. You have to fight. You have to fight for it. You have to want it. You have to earn it. Yeah. I didn't want it that yeah. much. Deep throat said, trust no one. It's hard, Sally. 
suspecting everyone, everything. 